This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of Body to Burial. We're so happy you're here, and we hope you're settling into the new year and that it's treating you well. Before we get started with today's guest, I just had a couple little announcements I wanted to make. First, Nikki and I just wanted to say how incredibly grateful we are to everyone who has listened and who has shared the podcast with a friend, a family member, your favorite barista. We really appreciate you taking the time to share our show and who have written in to give us feedback and leave ratings and reviews and follow us on Instagram and starting conversations with us there. We're just so humbled at the amount of you that turn up each week to join us. And we are so thankful for your patience as we find our way through this podcasting journey, which is new to us. And we hope that we are turning out things that make you proud and make you excited to join us each week. So thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you have done alongside us. And we're really excited to see all of the new things that we're going to be able to accomplish in 2023. Okay, so the next bit of business that I wanted to mention, in case you didn't know, we did recently launch the Body to Burial Book Club. January's selection is a book called If You Tell by Greg Olson. So go ahead and add that to your Kindle. If people are still using Kindles, I always order actual books. I love the smell and touch and feel of a good book. So get yourself the book join us. If you decide you want to elevate your book club experience, you can join the Patreon group um, at the forensic specialist level, and that will allow you access into the Body to Burial book club Facebook group, as well as access to the Facebook Live that we'll do. This month, we're doing it on the 27th of January, and we will talk about the book all together. So if you're interested in that, definitely head over to Patreon, and it is the Forensic Specialist level. I think that's all of the little things I wanted to say. So Nikki, let's not keep them waiting anymore. Let's move to our guest. Okay, so we know that I'm excited about this one. Okay, I mean, I, I'm ready for you to tell me what we got going on because I know, I think I know who it is this week because we've had conversations that are leading me to believe that I know who it is. Yeah. But you can go ahead and confirm it for me and for everybody else. Yeah, Lisa Bailey. And I was looking at her on Instagram for a while now and her page and just, she's so interesting. Her Instagram is Clay and Bones and she, she is a retired FBI forensic sculptor. So what? like reconstruction artists. No, like forming the faces. There are reconstruction artists that are, if you're going to have a viewing and all that stuff, this is to identify someone. So the- Like a missing person or there we go. maybe like a yeah. cold case or something like that. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And her Instagram is wild. It just, it's wild to me how she can make someone look who they were from their skull. So I'm really excited to know more about her and know more about her job because it's so fascinating to me. Cause you know, the artsy type stuff and. Well, yeah, you're it. into that. You can do all love that, it. like molding and crafting. Yeah. Love a little cool play special work. effect makeup and stuff. So I feel that is definitely in your wheelhouse. I could bust out my coloring book with my coloring pencils that I can 
and shade and the whole bit. Love it. There Love you go. This whole I, thing. I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure they actually sell little fun at home facial reconstruction kits what? where you can practice molding faces. So maybe I know what to get you for, you know, oh. a little a little Friday treat. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that. I've seen those. I would be terrible, but I think you would do You an never know. Job. You should buy yourself one and, and surprise yourself. Ugh, I don't know. I don't know. I guess, gosh, how does she form like the ridges of your eyebrows and I don't know. the little corners of your mouth? Because, you know, some people kind mm-hmm. of droop down a little bit like a sad frog. I know? feel like all my people are going to look the same if that were my job. And that's a problem. So maybe I'm, not, though, because there has to be some way that they're getting details, right? That's going to help you determine how to mold their face. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for her. I'm excited to talk to her. I think that if you're listening to this, you should look at her Instagram because a visual is always the best. And yeah, it's crazy what she can do with clay. It really is. It's really interesting, I think. So I'm really excited that she's coming on and I'm really excited to talk to her. Okay, well, how about I go get her for us and we'll get this started. Exciting. Hey, Lisa. Yeah. Hey, how are you? Hi. Hi. I'm good. Well, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us. We're really excited to get to know you and to get to know your occupation. For us, an easy way to kind of bridge into it is for you to define your occupation in like one to two sentences. I was a forensic artist at the FBI for 18 years. Basically, the last 10 years, I was primarily a forensic sculptor. So that is exactly like the TV show Bones, but not really because I am not an anthropologist and we don't do it with holograms. So when there is an unidentified skull and essentially all other means of identification have been exhausted, then sometimes, not always, sometimes either the law enforcement agency or the medical examiner will request a facial approximation. That's pretty much the last ditch effort to get that person identified. And the hope is that when that image is publicized, put in a database, whatever, somebody will look at them, there will be a spark of recognition and they'll go, hey, maybe that's why I haven't heard from my cousin in five years. I mean, that's literally how things happen. Um, Mm. And then they will call in a lead to police. That is so interesting. That's crazy. I want to go back a second. So you started in forensic, like a sketch artist? Well, I kind of got into forensic art without trying. Okay, tell us about that. Being a forensic artist at the FBI is the brass ring. I mean, anybody who's a forensic artist, which covers a lot of ground, would, you know, like kill to be at the FBI because it it is the absolute coolest forensic job on the planet. It just is. So I was sort of preparing for the job without realizing it. I was always drawing as a kid. And I would, oh, I'm showing my age. I'd watch Hawaii Five-0 and it's like, oh, look, they're doing a deposit. That would be a cool job. And then I think it was on Quincy, somebody was doing a facial approximation. And I was like, that would be a really cool job. But, you know, they're wearing a white coat. So I think, well, they're a scientist and I hate science. And so that idea went kind of in and out of my brain. And I was only 15 at the time. So anyway, I couldn't afford college, joined the Navy. And I'm saying all this because everybody's path to forensic art is different, but it's the same in that pretty much all of us got in without looking, <laughs> without intending to. So I joined the Navy. I was a Russian linguist for six years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember a whole lot of it. I can still order a beer in Russian. <laughs> so, the, so the one thing that was great about the Navy besides making me grow up fast, I got a very high level clearance, which is super marketable in Washington, D.C. So as soon as I was discharged from the Navy, I got a job at Johns Hopkins, the applied physics laboratory, not the hospital. So it's literally a research facility full of rocket scientists. And I was doing data processing 
processing. I hated it. I hated data processing. It's the absolute opposite of my personality. But the one good thing is because it's Johns Hopkins, they were very big on education. So they paid for my college while I worked full-time and went part-time. So after 11 years of that, I was qualified to become a graphic artist at Hopkins. So I got promoted and I loved it. I was doing concept art and I knew all the software programs like Freehand, Photoshop, 3D programs. And I, I loved it, loved my coworkers. And I never intended on leaving. But um, Dunkin' Donuts fault because I was at Dunkin' Donuts and I was flipping through the Washington Post and I saw the FBI seal and it was an ad for an artist illustrator at the FBI. And I was like, oh my God, they have that? It never occurred to me that they would have artists at the FBI. It just was something that was never on my radar. And so I'm reading the ad and it was like, okay, I know that software. I know that. I know how to draw. I'm willing to travel. And I'm like, check, check, check. And it's like, well, dang, like, well, you should apply. And I thought, well, I'm never going to get it. I mean, there's got to be a million people applying for that. But I thought, well, you know, they've got to interview me because I've got everything they're looking for. So I'll get to see what the inside of the FBI looks like. So like six months ago, goes by with, you know, crickets. So I just think, okay, that's done. And then I'm in the middle of a rush job and I get a phone call and it's like, well, we've narrowed down the candidate list and you're one of them. And then I did a phone interview. I nearly had a heart attack on the spot. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed. And then a few days later, they said, it's yours if you want it. Wow. I know. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, I had to submit a portfolio. I remember they call it a career board. So they were like five or six people interviewing me on the phone. And they're like, do you have a website? And this was like 1990. I was like, no, because I didn't even have a computer. So I went out and I bought a computer and I made a website and I put my portfolio on it. And so that's how they saw my portfolio. So yeah, so then I got it. But here's the thing. So that was like after nine months, right, since I put in the application. So then there's FBI agents interviewing all my high school friends and, you know, just going through my life. And then there was a hiring freeze. So for two and a half more years, for a total of three years, I had to cool my heels being told that I had a job at the FBI. But there was a hiring freeze and they couldn't bring me on board. Those were three of the most stressful years of my life. <laughs> I was like, am I still going to get it? Yeah. Like mid-2001, the freeze lifted. And then all the gears started going up again. And then FBI agent came into my office and said, welcome to the Bureau. That's fantastic. <laughs> what was odd is that that was September 7th, 2001, when he came into the Bureau and said, you know, you're in. And then, of course, Tuesday happened, you know, 9-11. And so I, I called my supervisor and I was like, I understand that you guys <laughs> have bigger fish to fry. So I am still available, you know, whenever. And he said, no, they're stepping up hiring. So you should be in by Christmas. And I was. I was in November 4th, I think was my start date. And then we okay. jumped right into Kent Bomb was the name of the investigation for for the for 9-11. So I worked on that. The rest of the team had already been working 12-hour days. So I came in on the tail end, but I, I did work on some amount of that. Yeah. What were you doing on that? First, we had to scan in and retouch 3,000 photos because this is before digital was just you know, the norm. So we had a lot of second generation images of the victims. We were creating just large charts of all the victims and separate for like, okay, these were the passengers on this, on this plane. They were the passengers on that plane. At that point, since I was new, every new FBI hire goes through a year of probation. So since all of this was preparation for the eventual trial of Zacharias Musawi, one of the suspected hijackers. So this was all in, in preparation for his trial. So before I was there a year, I couldn't work on anything with that I might have to testify to. That's why I was scanning photographs. Everybody in the unit was busy scanning and retouching photographs and all that. But the senior artists were putting together 3D presentations, interactive presentations. They deserve all the accolades for that. It was tough to work on it. 
I knew somebody that a, a colleague at Johns Hopkins, he'd come in, you know, when I was an artist there and he actually died at the Pentagon. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, no. I mean, thank you. It was just, it was so surreal. You know, I knew him from one job and now I'm seeing his picture from 9-11. It was, it was just surreal. Working on stuff like that, everybody felt so helpless after 9-11. It makes you feel like at least you're doing something, you know, you're, mm -hmm. you're helping in some way. So the bulk of my career and what I was most fascinated by and threw my heart and soul into was facial approximation, working on skulls. That was my big love of <laughs> forensic art. Could you walk us through how that works? So you get contacted by your boss, I'm assuming, who assigns you to a case. Walk us through the process, how you get put on a job and what it means to work the job. Okay, so for facial approximation, either the investigating agency, it could be the police agency or the medical examiner, they'll contact the FBI and it goes through the chain, goes down to the anthropologist. Uh, the anthropologist talks to them about what tests they might have already done because they could call in saying we need a facial approximation, but if it turns out they haven't had DNA done or they haven't had a forensic odontologist look at it, then the FBI offers that. So they're there to do everything they can and it's all free of charge. So the case comes in, the skull first goes to the forensic anthropologist and they itemize everything and they do their evaluation. Sometimes things that have come in from the field might have been to a medical examiner who might have thought that it was a 30-year-old male when it could turn out to be a 40-year-old female. or We'd usually get a wide age range, like 40 to 60 or something like that. So then I would get the report from the forensic anthropologist. He would transfer custody of the skull over to me. We would talk about it. We would go over the unique features of it. I would get digital scan of it because we never sculpt on the skull itself. It was done for many years, never by the FBI. The FBI never sculpted on the actual skull. So when we first started doing facial approximation. It was all 2D. It was all pencil and paper over a photograph of the skull. This is so interesting. It is fascinating to me as well. So yeah, so after we get the scan of the skull, then a replica is printed and I would sculpt on top of that replica and then I would have the evidentiary skull next to me. So applying the tissue depth markers, all that, that goes on the plastic replica. The actual skull is never touched. When we do hold it, we're wearing gloves. I mean, it's all protected. It's, it's very well regulated. So nobody else's DNA gets on it, anything like that. So then after probably eight or so hours of sculpting, I get kind of a, a rough face put on. And at that point, I truly believe that if somebody knew that person in life, even at that rough stage, I 1000% believe that they would be able to recognize them because the facial structure would be there because it just starts looking like a person. So then the anthropologist will come in and say, okay, I like the way you're going here. I think the nose might be more crooked. Of course, they can tell whether the bone, whether the nose was broken during life, which teeth were missing before they died or after. So if any teeth had fallen out before the person died, then any front teeth, then I would sculpt them with their lips parted to show that that might be one of the most recognizable things about the person. I mean, people have been recognized just like, oh, Oh my God, like, I, I know who that is. I know that smile. They were missing that too. You know, we can certainly get IDs that way. So once the anthropologist signs off, we get pictures taken and send them off to the requester. Hopefully it goes into the database and hopefully it's publicized. We did get quite a large number. I mean, I'm still getting notified of identifications even now, even being retired three years. The anthropologist notified me of one. I think one of the best things to happen, which might make forensic artists mad, I don't know, but the, 
the advances in genetic genealogy, like how they caught the um, Green River Killer. Yeah, the guy in San Francisco. Yes, yes, yes. I'll be gone in the dark. Yeah, that, yes. that's how they caught yes. him. So they're doing that as well for unidentified remains, which is... I think that's fantastic. It, it is, because it's cutting through, you know, I hate to say, like a lot of the middlemen, but what we're hoping to accomplish with the facial approximation is getting DNA from somebody who thinks they are a family member. So we're just seeing more and more pop up. And the one that I was just notified about the other day that the anthropologist sent to me, she was identified purely through genetic genealogy. I mean, I think she had been missing 30 years. She was a homicide victim, but there was a good resemblance. And that to me is just satisfying because we're doing our job right. <laughs> and exactly. that's, that's what I cared about. Once you're done and you publish it, where would a family member go to look at these to maybe be recognized? There is uh, a government website. It's called NAMUS, N-A-M-U-S dot gov. And so they can search unidentified approximations. Sometimes it'll happen where it'll get publicized locally. You know, the first identification I was involved with, it was shown on evening news. It was this woman who had been murdered, you know, found behind a convenience store. And the woman said, that, that kind of looks like your sister. And the husband went, ooh, yes, it sort of does. And so he called the police and got his DNA and that was an identification. Wow. Yeah. Eye color and hair color. Is that just a guesstimate on what you think that would be? When we did the approximations, we never used color because I've had five different hair colors like in the past yeah. five years. Yeah. <laughs> but also just because somebody goes missing one day doesn't mean they're going to be found the next. So let's say somebody goes missing and she had blonde hair and then 10 years later, somebody with bright red hair is found and maybe the person writing the report didn't think to say brown hair dyed red. I mean, you don't know the circumstances of how this will be entered. So you could have a potential miss just because you put hair color on something where it didn't ping for the person looking at it. Mm. If we were to depict person had brown hair because a hair mask was found, well, was it light brown or dark brown? Was it short? Was it long? What style was it? It gets into so many variables that if I were to do a brown eyed sculpture with brown hair, well, then I'd need to color in the rest of it because it looks kind of silly to have like a plain beige sculpture with brown hair and brown eyes. So then you start bringing in variables that you don't know, like what's the skin tone? Did they have freckles? We try to keep it to as much of what we know and eliminate what we don't. Look at the face shape. Look at the proportion of their features within their face because the things that we absolutely do know, we do know if they had close set eyes or wide set eyes or short nose, long nose. We know that from these skulls. So that's what people need to look at and not the minutia of, oh, she had a cleft in her chin and this sculpture doesn't have a cleft. Well, we don't know what causes a cleft chin just from the skull. You can't tell if they were heavy, right? Like if they were thin or heavy, can you tell that? The anthropologist, that would be the person who could. The problem is just because somebody is wearing an extra large sweatshirt when they're found, it doesn't mean you can't say. And I believe there were studies done, I think at the University of Tennessee, but I remember reading about, but correct me if I'm wrong, where they were trying to determine weight from the amount of that that had seeped into the ground. We never were able to use anything like that. We basically just went on the size of the clothing that was found. Sometimes no clothing was found. We just really have to go with average. 
there's not much more you can do in that situation, you know? Yeah. There's no more to go on. It's just so fascinating to me. The whole thing, it's so crazy how after what you've done and then they're found and you look at pictures, they are relatively close, right? Some of them are so close, it's scary. Wow. Forensic artists should never do a facial approximation without the assistance of a forensic anthropologist, period. That's just how it should be because the forensic anthropologist is an expert in that and there's no reason to not have an anthropologist involved. If you don't have one, then hand it to an agency that does. Mistakes can be made. And I personally, when my very first facial approximation went out, I was worried. I was obsessing, like, did I make the nose too wide or too narrow? And what about the eyes? And what about that? And, you know, I hope I didn't mess it up. And then I was like, wait a minute, you had a board certified anthropologist review your work. It's legitimate. You had another set of professional eyes. Like I said, that's just how I, I think it should be done. I want to kind of understand the process of making the facial model a little bit more in depth because I was reading an article so I'm hoping you can help kind of explain this a little bit better where it had talked about what do they call it that you fit pegs so that you can determine like the depth of the, the tissues and I'm assuming like you said you work with your anthropologist your anthropologist tells you like we think this is a male in his 40s who probably was African-American and I guess I'm trying to understand how do you determine the measurements for the jawline or the eye sockets how does all that work exactly that, that is an awesome question. So there, the initial tissue depth charts that every forensic artist became familiar with were done, I think, like in the 1980s. And they had like, I don't know, 100, how many people, where they literally stuck pins in cadavers and took measurements. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So they would say, okay, we have 15 average weight females, Caucasian, above their eye orbit, like say right around their eyebrow, six millimeters. Somebody else was seven or eight, and then they averaged it all together. And that's what we used for many years. And actually, the FBI had a project where it had access to hundreds of living donors' CT scans. So you could get absolutely exact measurements, you know, down to the tenth of a millimeter or something. And then through a compilation of other studies, there were literally thousands of samples that were gathered. And the, the crux of that was before everything was separated into average female, older female, heavier female, you know, African-American, Caucasian. And from the data that was all pooled from thousands was like, it's not so much the ethnicity of the person that changes the tissue depth, it's the structure of the skull. The skull is what's in charge. There are variables, of course, but it might only be a millimeter or two. So like if you touch the side of your jaw, touch the back of the jaw under your ear. That's gonian on your mandible and the average is 18 millimeters. Well, of course, it could be more or less if you're heavier or thinner, but that's the average. So I would put the average tissue depth on that skull. If there was something unique about that skull, like somebody had a very robust jawline or a very rugged skull, you can just tell the bone is what determines what the face looks like. So if there is a strong muscle attachment on the jaw, that means a thicker muscle and more flesh. Or if somebody has a very strong brow there will be thicker muscle, more flesh there. So we accentuate, we, we look at the averages, but we accentuate 
what is unusual about that skull. So we don't homogenize it. If you were to do the average tissue depth on every single skull, then you're unwittingly taking out something that was unique to that skull. And so that's why we start with average, but then we adjust from there. There's no hard and fast rule. So is there a condition in which maybe a body is found to where facial reconstruction just isn't possible? How much damage can you work around? If enough of one side of the face is there, we know we're not symmetrical. So let's say we have both the skull and the mandible. So let's say that the left eye orbit is busted. (laughs) Busted. That's my, that's the, that's the anthropological (laughs) (laughs) Totally. That works for us. But, you know, skulls, they go through a lot of trauma. So let's say that the left eye orbit is missing, like the brow or whatever, that it's been cracked and a chunk is gone. Well, then we can look at the right eye orbit and go, okay, we're going to mirror that. And then if the right bone has been damaged, then we'll look at the left cheekbone. So we'll take what we can get from either side to complete it. And there were a number of cases that would come in where the anthropologist would say, is this enough for you to work with? Based on that, I would go, yeah, sure, sure. We have, we've had IDs where the mandible was gone and you're kind of making an educated guess on what the bottom half of the face looks like. And yeah. you're doing that based off of the canons of proportion that the eyes are in the middle of the skull, you know, the face is divided into thirds. But then sometimes you get an ID and you're like, I don't know how that was identified because we might not see it. The family member, whoever looked at that and saw something in it, it could just be, it was something about the eye. You know, the nose looked familiar. They don't have to be perfect. We want them to be as perfect and accurate as they can be. If we can just catch the public's attention, if it just takes a picture for somebody to go, wait a minute, what's that? And then look at it, then that can start that ball rolling and getting that person identified. This may be a stupid question, but is there a certain level that these cases have to be to be able to get the full 3D facial reconstruction? Because in my head, I always think of like the black and white pencil sketches that you see. Do they not really do that anymore? The pencil ones now, it depends on the agency and what their capabilities are. Not every agency has access to a 3D scanner. Uh, Of course, they're getting so cheap now, like my nephews have one. (laughs) (laughs) They're nine. The pencil sketches you see out there, those were done you know, 2D approximation, that's how the FBI used to do them. It's all the same information being used. If that agency didn't want to sculpt on the actual skull, the 2D method was used. And that has been used for decades and it's thoroughly viable. Sometimes we would get a request that pencil sketch had been done or 2D had been done. 30 years have gone by, now they want a sculpture. So the FBI does not normally redo a case, but let's say the first case was done, but a forensic anthropologist wasn't involved. And now there's been a advances in facial approximation as far as the guidelines. That the guidelines that were followed, you know, in the 70s and 80s, those have been improved upon. So then that would justify doing a 3D approximation. So the FBI does facial approximations for any agency free of charge. When I first started the FBI, we were only doing 2D because we didn't have a scanner. And then after I was there for seven years, we got a 3D scanner and it wasn't just used for facial approximation. It was also used for crime scene diagramming and, you know, going out to scenes. And then they got a 3D print So then somebody before me said, hey, we can sculpt them now. And that's right when I got involved. Uh, My first facial approximations were 2D. I had never sculpted before the FBI. When we got the 3D capability, there was one person doing the sculpting. Were you intimidated by that? Because I'm not an artist. I can't draw at all. But I feel like if I could draw, switching mediums would be 
a little scary to me. But if you're an artist, is it easier to transfer between the mediums? Actually, the sculpting gave me a better understanding of drawing because to me, the 2D was more limiting because you shade something in a particular way, it will look like a completely different shape. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. How you render that drawing completely changes the look of the face. But when you're building it in 3D, the face, it it happens. Mm -hmm. It just happens organically. I felt as, as soon as I started doing the sculpted ones, I was much more satisfied with the approximations because I felt they were more accurate. It's a personal choice. There are some artists that just feel much more comfortable doing the drawing and and that's great. And they do it like front view and side view and they have a very good handle on it. A thoroughly valid method. It's really all the same whether you do a 2D drawing or you do a 2D Photoshop illustration of a skull. Doing them in clay is exactly the same as doing them digitally. And clay is, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's good to get your hands into it, literally into the dirt and work. But doing it digitally is just faster. Um, I remember my um, some of you saying like, well, you don't want to sculpt anymore. You want to give up sculpting? It's like, well, no, but if it's going to be faster to do it digitally and with the digital program, you can change the transparency and you can look at the skull through the digital clay. I mean, there's just a lot of advantages. How long does a a clay sculpting take you on a skull? A week, but it's not consecutive. So I would probably say like about 40 hours. I did start getting faster because there were some things I realized that I could speed up. Like rather than sculpting new ears for every single sculpture, I thought, you know what? I'm going to make a mold of ears and then I'm going to make castings and then I'm just going to take them out and pop them on the sculpture and adjust them. Why spend three hours sculpting? ears when nobody cares about ears. Yeah. And then, you know, just with experience, just getting faster at the sculpting. So I would say for me about 40 hours, but not all at once because, you know, you stand back, you look at it, you intermingle with other cases. I might have five or six skulls on my table at one time. You know, I'd work on one one day, a couple of days, then switch gears, work on another. An age progression might come in or a, a postmortem, then I would work on that. Kind of juggling cases. Can I ask a clarifying question? Again, this could be a horribly silly question but I'm just trying to understand this. So let's say I'm missing and you're going to make my face. Do you have a standard skull that you use and you build out on top of that? Or do you put in the measurements into your software and then that 3D prints the skull that you then put the clay on top of? We have the skull of the unidentified person. You use their actual skull. You're not making a new one or a copy. Yeah, no, we work from the unidentified skull. When, When a skull comes in, it is touched the absolute least amount necessary. After it's been cleaned, you know, when it's being cleaned, it's handled with gloves. We always wear gloves when we're handling a skull. Like I said, that's why we did not sculpt on them. And, you know, 30 years ago, that was just how it was done because, well, we need to identify this person. So we're going to do a facial approximation and we will put the clay on the skull. And, you know, that was fine. But now we have other options. So the, you know, the advantage of having the print is that as you're building the face, you're not covering up your reference material. You know, I'd be working on a replica and then I could go back to the skull and go, yeah, he really does have broad cheekbones, you know, because sometimes the sculpture will surprise you and go, oh, I didn't think it would come out like that. It's hard to explain, but sometimes the face will surprise you. Did you have a good idea of muscle and bone structures as an artist before this? Before I had some because I was mostly doing graphic work and in conceptual artwork. My degree was in graphic design, but we did have to do our share of, you know, life drawing classes and all that. 
that. But getting into forensic art, absolutely, you need to know all the bones and the muscles by heart. You need to know them and know the function. Like when I talked about the heavy brow rid, well, depending on the shape of that rid, of how heavy it is, that can affect how the wrinkles are formed. Is the brow ridge is a V shape, then they might have like a really deep center wrinkle. I guess, what do they call them? The 11s, like when you frown and you get those horrible. Yeah. Yep. Right? Yep. So, yes. So, you know, if I can say for, you know, for anybody listening who wants to be a forensic artist, most of the forensic art is composite art. Getting your hands on a skull is tough. Every forensic artist wants a skull, and I was no exception. That's how most of the jobs happen is maybe somebody's in law enforcement and they have artistic skill, and then their boss says, guess what? You're going to be our new forensic artist. That's how it usually comes about. I would get so many calls and emails. People would track me down at work and call me at work and ask me how to be a forensic artist. And there is no clear cut path. Like if you want to be an astronaut, then you will, number one, you're going to be smart and then go to college and join the military, whatever, and then work for NASA or Elon Musk or whatever. But that's how you become (laughs) an astronaut. That is the path you follow. With forensic art, you can take all the classes in the world and you can be the best illustrator and sculptor, but you need to be in a position where you can do that job for an agency that's looking for an artist. Not all agencies have such high opinions of forensic artists. That's the other thing. Some go, we're not doing that. That's fooey. Heard it many times, many times. Why do they have such a distaste for it? Beats me. I have a few theories. Um, Maybe it's because we're going to solve it with good old-fashioned police work. We don't need those stinking artists to come in here. Maybe it's not on their radar, you know, because they're getting cases in and out all the time. And you clear a case, you get another, you get 20 more cases. So it just might not stay in their mind that oh, that sketch artist really helped us out last time. You know, they have mm-hmm. to be, be reminded. Just So it's it's no fault of theirs. And I know plenty of police artists who say, you know, I got to remind my boss all the time, you know, hello, I'm here. I can go do a sketch. Probably, I, I can say with some confidence that the reason there are probably not more sketch artists is that full-time position is really rare because the police agencies, they can't justify having solely an artist on staff doing nothing else. Large agencies like the NYPD, L.A., they have enough crime going on that they do have full-time sketch artists. A smaller agency, they just don't have the money to devote on something that you can't guarantee will work. I mean, you can't guarantee anything's going to work, but they they have to justify it to their bosses. So that's why most of the vast majority of sketch artists or people that go on to do facial approximation or whatever, they're already employed by law enforcement. They're already cleared to handle evidence. You know, skulls are evidence. A composite sketch is evidence. When we finish a composite sketch, it's It is entered into evidence because it could go to trial and you may have to testify to it. They will truly look for the person in the agency who is, you know, drawing cartoons of their boss or something and say, guess what? You're going to go to composite art school and you're going to be our sketch artist. I know so many people that's happened to and it's worked out well. One of the big misunderstandings about how sketch artists do what they do is that, you know, how do you draw faces that you've never seen? Well, you have the witness describing it. And then we use facial references. So you are using a reference. Uh, we developed a catalog at the FBI of the facial identification catalog. The first section would be head shape, you know, long face, short face, triangular head, then close set eyes, wide set eyes, all that. So when the witness is describing and they say, you know, he had this big goofy looking head and a really long nose with a bump and these crazy wide set eyes, they would go to that section. It's like, okay, you say you had really wide set eyes. Then they would look at photos and go, were they anything like this? So when we do a composite sketch, we're getting the witness's verbal description. And then when they've gone through as much as they can say verbally, then we get on the same page 
literally with a reference photo of the features. You know, the full face is shown, but okay, he had these eyes. And so then we start sketching out. It's like, okay, you know, you get the head shape in. It's best to try to do it all organically, like develop it as a whole. So you're not just doing the eyes and then go to the nose. So you develop it all together. And then, you know, the witness can look at it and go, "Ah, I think the eyes were like closer set. It all depends on the witness. The witness is the person who I think... deserves the credit for a successful composite sketch. In my mind, the artist is doing their job and it's the witness that held their stuff together enough where they could describe a person because I doubt I could do it. That's a lot of detail for someone to remember. Some people can remember details, others none. I would not be able to remember details. I remember my first supervisor, he had this amazing case. I wish I could show it to you. He was a little girl, so he was doing a hospital interview of this man who had sexually assaulted her. And he said her description, you could see the whites under his eyes. You could see this. You could see that. That, she was, I think, nine years old. Wow. And when you see the composite, it's very, Like very identical. Pretty, I mean, I've seen some composite sketches that are just remarkable. It is better to have a skilled interviewer and a an average artist than an outstanding portrait artist who can't interview. How do you not let what you do consume every waking minute of your life? On, on two different levels. For, for facial approximations, I did have to get to the point where... I had to recognize that no matter how hard I worked, how hard the anthropologists, the police, all that, no matter how hard everybody worked, not everybody might be identified. I just had to come to the realization that if somebody wasn't identified, it wasn't for lack of trying. I just had to come to that realization. That's what helped. If somebody were not identified, let's say if a family member said, oh, we, we saw that sculpture, but we knew it couldn't possibly be her, that would be a stab in the heart to me. That is what I don't want to hear. But thank goodness that's okay. never happened. And I've certainly worried about witnesses, sexual assault victims from composites. So those tore me up. Those, those took a few days to get over. But what a beautiful thing you're doing for these families and these people. Even if they don't get identified, at least there's a face. There's, there's someone out there. Trust me when I say that there are a lot of people working themselves, you know, to pieces to get these people identified. There are many people who have tried. A family could have reported somebody missing. And it may be that when the body was found, viable DNA wasn't available. You know, for me, I loved my job. I felt very lucky to love my job that much. Do you want to do some fun questions with her? Yeah. Oh, fun questions. I like to ask this one. If you were to pick your last meal... What would it be? <laughs> wait, wait, give me a minute. Okay, it doesn't have to be healthy because I'll be dead. Right. No, you go big. Okay. Yeah. So, pad thai with fried tofu, lots of fried tofu, and chocolate-covered macadamia. Ooh, <laughs> love. Macadamia, macadamia nuts are very expensive and they're very fattening, but I wouldn't care. No, it wouldn't matter. No, my father-in-law gets me those macadamia nuts every year for Christmas, and I look forward to it every single year. They're the best. I love them. At one point, I saw honey-glazed macadamia. Ooh. I cannot find them again, which is probably a good thing. But (laughs) if I have to have a last meal, I will make the prison shell out the money for the macadamia. You ask for it. All of it. I always like to ask this one too. What is something you collect or hoard? I can't resist. I have a number of them. I love the little pottery, the planters from like the 40s, like the really silly ones. Yes. You know, the eyes are crooked. I have a frog playing a banjo. They just dig me like they crack me up because they're just so ridiculous. I have a bear sitting on the log and he's very, very happy. Just sitting there with a big smile on his face. I have... (laughs) 
This one was so ridiculous I couldn't resist. It was a lamb standing next to banana tree. And it was like, <laughs> why is a lamb standing next to a banana tree? I don't know, but I must have it. So I got a number of those. <laughs> That's a, a good one. I like that. <laughs> okay, I have to ask this one just because, you know, your job is very cool and it is one that is highly, you know, televised. So if you were going to be in a movie or a TV show, who would you want to play you? Oh, is it terrible that I already know because I love her? <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. Oh, oh she's the best. <laughs> yeah, I love her. This is my other quirky one. When you're loading the dishwasher, do you rinse the dishes off first or do they go just straight in? I only rinse them a tiny bit and it doesn't matter because my husband usually rearranges it anyway. I, I understand your husband. We're the same person. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> my husband's teasing me. He will stand like six feet away from the dishwasher and hold a dish and make a swinging motion. He goes, this is Lisa loading the dishwasher. And I'm like, ha ha, like... Stop at my side shirt. So, yeah, she's better at loading the dishwasher. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get yes, it. Yes, he's, he's very, I am very meticulous about many things, but loading the dishwasher is not one of them. Well, Lisa, we have kept you way longer than we anticipated. I'm so sorry. This always happens no. to us. We just love asking questions, and you're such a joy to talk to, so we appreciate it so much. Thank, I mean, I was sitting here going, oh, my God, can I say this, and is that, Whenever I had to do an interview with the FBI, there was always somebody from public affairs sitting next to me. And then it wasn't, it wasn't like, Lisa, do you want to do an interview? It's like, Lisa, guess what? You're doing an interview. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, no, I, I really, I really appreciate this. This is fun to reminisce and, you know, talk. Well, thank you. I was so excited when you agreed to do it. Your job is very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, she's been stalking your Instagram for a long time now. And so she was super nervous to reach out to you and was like, oh, do you think she'll say yes? And so. <laughs> she is very delighted to have you sit down with us. Oh, thank you so much. And you know what? Please ask me questions because sometimes, you know, I'll say to my sisters, like, what should I post? Like, do you think people be interested in this? And it's hard to remember before you worked on Skulls how interesting other people find yeah. it. Well, I'm sure we'll circle back with more questions because that always happens to us too. It's like we'll get off the phone with someone and then we'll be like, oh, we didn't ask this. How did we not ask this? So I'm sure we'll be bothering you some more. <laughs> if you do, that's totally fine. It's not a bother at all. It's fun. Great. Well, thank you. You've you've made my day. Oh, it was really, it's really fun to talk. I loved it. I know you did. Were you so happy to finally have her at the mic? Mm-hmm. I really was. I really was. I've been stalking her for a little bit. I don't think we said it. So what, because I don't think we said it in our intro. What's her Instagram handle? And you know, I hate that word handle. It kills <laughs> Sorry. <me. laughs> Maybe I should just say, what's her Instagram? Yeah, okay. there you go. I hate handle. I don't know. It just really bothers me. I don't know why. Okay, so what's one her of those Instagram, words? Nikki? Okay, clay and bones. Clay and All bones. All one word. Clay and bones. Okay, yeah. You've been stalking her for a while in a non-creepy yes, non way. So for sure. I knew you had to be loving this. One. I really was. And if you look at her Instagram and you look at the pictures, it's so cool and so crazy how she can take a skull and recreate a face to look like someone and to have it look like them. It's crazy to me. You know, this is where my mind drifts during these interviews. And I'm literally sitting here thinking, man, she would be the best partner on Cranium for the glutals or whatever it is where you have to do the sculpting with clay. Because I always get that stupid card. And yeah. I'm like, ugh. But man, Lisa would 
knock it out of the park. You know what I was wondering about? If someone had to describe my head shape, like what would that be? I literally was thinking that too. How would Will, who looks at my face every day, how would he describe it? Uh, I swear to God. She has a resting, resting angry face. Like (laughs) what would he say? I swear to God, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, when she's like, they got narrow eyes and they got this and they got that. I'm like, oh, that, that doesn't sound so nice. What would someone say about me? I think the next time we get together, that's the game we should play. We should be like, describe your spouse. (laughs) How are you going to describe me to describe Nikki so that I can draw her? I wouldn't want to be rude and be like, um, larger nose. How do you know um, though? You either have yeah. like horrible, what is it? That, I mean, thank God the 90s, no eyebrows are not coming back, hopefully. But I mean, you're, you're really going to have to pick the person apart. It's a little mean. And depending on when you are looking at my face, sometimes I have wrinkles and sometimes I don't. So it would be a little challenging. A smoothish face every, you know, three months. <laughs> every three months, she looks great. Then there's this little period where she definitely has some like deep crows. Yes. I really was thinking that. I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'd like that. Because what if, <laughs> what if somebody they describe me really insensitively and then I would be sad? But I mean, I just think it's curious what people notice, right? Because I had this little neighborhood kid over the other day and she told me I was 50. That hurt a little bit. That oh my hurt. God. <laughs> totally. I was like, that's, is that how people view me? 50? Well, really? I think it's just because like, you're uh, old in her eyes. Like, you're old. I know. And you, and she thinks you're like 900. Which is just so sad. Yeah. You're just at because that age. Because you know that the kids are the most innocent, right? Like, mm. they're the ones that are going to tell you you have crooked teeth I or really whatever. don't want to hear. Because yeah. they don't understand. They're just like so pure. So for a kid to be like, mm, yeah, I thought you were 50. <laughs> She really thinks it. She really (laughs) thinks it. She really thinks it. Like deep in her core. Yeah. I think you need to make an appointment with Botox then if that's. Apparently. Yeah. I need to shed my whole outer layer of my face. Yeah. You need a chemical peel. Yeah. But Lisa was, she was great. I mean. Really interesting to me. It's just one of those jobs that I'm always so fascinated by because it's something I could could never do not even attempt to do and I will say for our younger listeners I think the greatest thing that she said in this entire interview was that the FBI asked her if she had a website where they could view her portfolio and instead of saying no she went and got herself a computer, got herself a website, and got that portfolio Mm -hmm. up. So if you really want a job and you are going after something, there's no stops. You just full steam ahead. And I think that that is so important. The craziest thing that I think about when we talk to people on all these different jobs is that there isn't a that many of them and this there's you know like it sounds even less of a job opportunity it just blows my mind you think that there's like a million of them but there's really not it's weird to me well I guess if you really start to get into the depths of structure and finance and government and it's just I don't know how you don't start looking at those things and getting frustrated because it comes down to money and not being willing to say there's the the budget for this person you know and or that the station like warrants their need. Yeah, it is. To me, it's always, yeah, I'm on the same page. It's shocking how Weird. few people in the world that do this stuff. And I think it's always interesting how none of them necessarily set out to do it. 
they always somehow like it's like find the universe puts on the path. A, yeah, the universe yeah. puts them in there. It's weird. Yeah, fantastic. I enjoyed her so much, and what a cool job. And again, I'm gonna say it. I'm probably gonna say it at the end of every episode. Questions, send them to us. We would love to bring back your favorite guests that we have, whether it's Lisa or another episode that you've listened to. Please send in your questions. Let us know what you would have wanted to ask, or if you're mad that we didn't ask. Send them I know. in. Can't ask them all. And sometimes we just go on trails and forget. Yeah. And that's why maybe sometimes we need to do part one, part two. You never know. Yeah. Maybe that's in the future. Send them in. Don't be shy. We want to hear from you. And I know that all of our guests want to hear from you guys too. So send them to us. All right. This is a good one. I know. I'm ready for the next one. Exactly. On to the next. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.